Hello and welcome to episode 2.8.5, the Solstice Edition of Notes from the Isle Seat, the podcast that covers the arts in northern Chautauqua County, sponsored by the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. My name is Tom Lachlan, and I'm your host as we bring you news and information about arts events at the Opera House and around the region, including interviews with artists and creators across the county. This special solstice edition has no guests or interviews or news of any kind. It's being released on December 21st, the winter solstice of 2022. I can't offer you an exact moment in time when it happened, but gradually over the years, I've moved further and further away from thinking of this time specifically and solely as Christmas time, and closer to understanding this time as a celebration of the return of light to the world. Almost every culture on the earth has a holiday or a festival that celebrates light in some fashion at this time of year. So I thought I would offer my listeners on this solstice day and for the winter season the gift of a few of the stories that celebrate light. My hope is that you will find in these stories a little more of the light we all need to get through winters cold and dark. God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. I would be remiss if I did not begin with an excerpt from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. The joy with which Dickens portrays the Cratchit family Christmas dinner is enough to bring light to the darkest places, and in particular, to the heart of Ebenezer Scrooge. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer, Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, 
with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose was the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon, to which a black swan was a matter of course, and in truth it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their posts, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it in the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose across the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife, and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness, were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet every one had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits, in particular, were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witnesses, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the back yard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose. A supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello! A great deal of steam! The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of a half a quartern of ignited brandy and bedecked with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding! Bob Cratchit said, and calmly, too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. 
At last the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted, and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table, and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth, in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers, and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us, which all the family re-echoed. God bless us every one, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered hand in his, as if he loved the child, and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in a poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. Man, said the ghost, if man you be in heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh, God! to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too-much-life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit, and was overcome with penitence and grief. If A Christmas Carol is England's most enduring holiday tale, then surely the most enduring American holiday tale is one by the short story writer William Sidney Porter, better known by his pen name O. Henry. The Gift of the Magi tells the story of a young married couple eager to give the very best Christmas presents to each other. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. 
Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, one dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at eight dollars per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a dollar eighty-seven with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only a dollar eighty-seven to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs, in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that has been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. But now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her, and then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts, and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eye, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. When she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sophonie, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran, and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophonie. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight of the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation. 
as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work, repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within forty minutes her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. At seven o'clock the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit for saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, "'Please, God, make him think I am still pretty.' The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Dell wriggled off the table and went for him. "'Jim, darling,' she cried, "'don't look at me that way. "'I had my hair cut off and sold it "'because I couldn't have lived through Christmas "'without giving you a present. "'It'll grow out again. "'You won't mind, will you? "'I just had to do it. "'My hair grows awfully fast. "'Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. "'You don't know what a nice, "'what a beautiful gift I've got for you.' "'Jim looked about the room curiously. "'You say your hair is gone?' he said, "'with an air almost of idiocy.' "'You needn't look for it,' said Della. "'It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. "'It's Christmas Eve, boy. "'Be good to me, for it went for you. "'Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered,' "'she went on with sudden serious sweetness. "'But nobody could ever count my love for you. "'Shall I put the chops on, Jim?' "'Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. "'He enfolded his Della. "'For ten seconds let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Finally, Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going there for a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper. And then an ecstatic scream of joy. And then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs. The set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window, 
Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile, and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull precious metal seemed to flash with the reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest, everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. Many cultures across the globe have legends about the struggle between darkness and light. The Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest tell many stories about the cleverness of the raven. In this raven tale, an evil wizard has stolen the sun and moon, and the raven is dispatched to bring them back to their rightful place in the sky. There was once a wizard named Tupelak, and he was a very mean man. He had many magical things, but his most prized possessions were a pair of boots. These boots allowed him to take very long steps, so that he could travel far across the tundra in one single movement. Tupelak did not care for other people much at all. One day he decided he did not want to be with other people anymore, so he put on his magical boots that let him take long steps. He stepped right up into the sky took out his hunting knife and cut a hole in the sky, which he crawled through. There was another world on the other side of the sky which was dark and cold. But Tupelak was a pretty dark and cold fellow himself, so this world suited him just fine. He built a house for himself there. When his house was built, he went back through the hole in the sky to get his wife. 
he told her to pack up everything they owned so she might come with him to their new home. Well, Tupelak's wife had a few things to say about the new world. She was not happy in the constant darkness. There were no neighbors, and she was lonely. Tupelak gave her a daughter to care for, to alleviate her loneliness. To solve the light issue was a bigger problem, but Tupelak was up to the challenge. He gathered up his hunting knife and two sturdy canvas bags which he reinforced with his magic. Finally, he put on his magic boots that let him take long steps. He stepped over to the hole that led back to the world which he crawled through. Then he stepped right up to the sun and popped it into one of his magical bags. Using a sinew rope, he tied the bag tight, very securely, and slung it over his shoulder. As daring as that may seem to steal the sun, Tupelak was not yet done. He stepped right over to the moon and snatched the moon into the second bag. Then Tupelak took the sun and the moon back through the hole which shut the world off entirely from the light. Meanwhile, the raven was taking a nap. He would lift his head now and then to check if it was light out, if it was time to wake, but each time he saw the darkness, he assumed he could just go back to sleep. He didn't realize anything was wrong until people started coming around to knock on his door, calling that they were cold and starving, asking him to do something on their behalf. The raven spoke with his people and discovered what had happened. He was not exactly a kind fellow, not the sort to go out of his way to help another unless there was something in it for him, but he knew right away that this must be the work of Tupelak. The raven and Tupelak had matched wits a few times, so the raven was pleased to have a chance to defeat the evil wizard once again. He assured the people he would regain the sun and moon for them. He found the hole Tupelak had cut in the sky, so went to confront Tupelak. As he flew toward the hole, the raven realized he would not be able to simply confront Tupelak and expect him to hand over the prize. He would have to watch this strange new world for a time to figure out how to steal the sun and moon back. Eventually, Raven saw Tupelak's lovely daughter. So he changed himself into a pine needle that floated down the stream into her drinking water. Very soon she had a baby that was none other than the Raven in disguise. Tupelak and his wife were the proudest of grandparents, and the mother doted on this baby that was really the Raven. They gave him everything he wanted. It was a pretty good life, but the baby that was the raven was constantly turning his gaze up to the two canvas sacks that hung near the ceiling of the house. One day, when Tupelak was out hunting, the baby reached up for the canvas bags as if he wanted to play with them. The grandmother and mother denied this demand, trying to distract the baby, but it didn't work. The baby got very mad that he could not have his way. He started to make a fuss, then a ruckus, then a whole heap of red-faced, mouth-open wailing that probably was audible across the tundra to Tupelak, though the wizard was far away, hunting. The women were frantic to quiet the baby, so finally they relented. When they gave the baby the bag which contained the moon, he calmed right down. Mother and grandmother were relieved. Yet, the moment they let their guard down, the raven began to work at the sinew ties with a lot more dexterity in his baby fingers than one would suspect possible. In a blink of an eye, the moon was loose. It popped up to the ceiling like a helium balloon, then out the chimney, up into the sky. Tupelak saw the moon rise up, bump through the sky, and escape through the hole, back into the world. 
He was wearing his favorite boots, so he took a long step to try and catch the moon, but he was too late. He returned to his home in a rage, where he demanded to know which of the women released the moon. When they told him the story and drew his attention to the baby, his rage drained as his heart softened at the sight of the little one. Tupolek was so smitten with his grandson that he could forgive him any offense. He told his wife to be more careful. The raven waited a while until Tupolak left to hunt once again before the baby started demanding the bag containing the sun. Again, at first, his mother and grandmother resisted, doing their best to try to sidetrack his demands, to ignore his tantrums, but in the end, Tupolak's wife brought down the canvas sack that contained the sun. Before she handed it over to the baby, she tied the sinew rope secure with a second knot. Try as he might, the raven could not make his baby's hand undo that double knot, so he had to make a new plan. He snuck away to where he had hidden his raven cloak, donned it to transform himself back into his true form. Knowing his time was short, he took the sinew cord in his beak and made for the hole between the worlds as fast as he could fly. He heard Tupolak shout far off, and without even looking over his shoulder, he knew that his old foe had taken up the chase, using those magical boots that allowed Tupolak to take such long steps. But Tupolak had been far away when he realized there was a problem, so it would take him quite a few long steps to reach the hole he had cut in the sky. He did not make it in time to prevent the raven from scooching through the hole in the sky where he used his sharp beak to free the sun from its bag. The sun escaped and rose into the sky, bringing back heat and life to everything its rays touched. Tupolak was defeated, so he turned back. He does try to steal the light again, year after year but that just invites the raven to come and get it back. In Scandinavian countries, the darkness and cold lasts far longer than in more temperate climes. The struggle to keep the light alive is reflected in this story from the gods and goddesses of Asgard. The Norse myth of the battle between light and dark has to do with the twin gods Baldr and Hodr. Baldr, the god of illumination, who is associated with the sun, became disturbed by a dream foreseeing his own death. When pressed about his melancholy, he tells this seemingly prophetic dream to his mother, Frigga. The goddess of childbirth and mothers, Frigga was not about to stand around and do nothing. 
So she went to Midgarth, where she extracted from all things, fire and water, iron and all metals, earth, stone, trees, poisons, birds, beasts, and sicknesses of all kinds, that they would do no harm to Baldur. This effectively rendered Baldur, the beautiful, the god of light, invulnerable. Quickly, the best entertainment for the confrontational and combative gods of Asgard was the throwing of dangerous objects at Baldur so they could all share the enjoyment of watching things bounce off him harmlessly. Loki, the trickster, was holding a bit of a grudge with Odin over the treatment of his own children by the mighty Allfather. He decided he could not stand this game. His envy of Baldur became too much to bear. So he shapeshifted himself into an old crone and paid a visit to Frigga, extracting from her, in their afternoon of conversation, the secret vulnerability of the invulnerable Baldur. There had indeed been one thing on Midgarth that she had not approached with the entreaty to preserve her son. It was the seemingly harmless mistletoe. With this knowledge well in hand, Loki snuck off to fashion a spear whose sharp tip was formed of mistletoe. Loki arrived at the game where the gods were hurling spears at Baldur. He discovered Hodur, the blind twin brother of Baldur, hovering nearby. Loki asked why he wasn't playing. When Hodur complained he had no weapon, Loki offered him the spear, even kindly suggesting he would assist Hodur in lining up the throw. The projectile flew true. Baldur was struck dead, fulfilling his dreadful premonition. Baldur descended to the underworld, where he became the guest of Hel, the goddess of the underworld. Frigga, mother of the gods, stood over her treacherously betrayed son's body. No mother could take such a senseless death lightly. She sent a messenger to the queen of the underworld, asking what price for her son's life, for all that lives was mourning over the loss of Baldur. Hel required proof of this claim saying that if every being on Midgarth would actually cry for the loss of the light, she would be convinced. If even one being did not cry, Baldur could not return. And so, at Yuletide, all living beings, birds, bees, beetles, fish, and human, call out for the return of the god of light. Baldur was thus rescued by his mother, who, in her joy, now kisses every man who stands beneath the mistletoe with her. Perhaps no people or nation in recent times has seen more darkness and suffering than the Jews in Europe during World War II. Yet, 
even in as dark and evil a place as the German concentration camp Bergen-Belsen, goodness, faith, and the Hanukkah lights could still be found. In Bergen-Belsen, on the eve of Hanukkah, a selection took place. Early in the morning, three German commandants, meticulously dressed in their festive black uniforms and invisibly high spirits, entered the men's barracks. They ordered the men to stand at the foot of their three-tiered bunk beds. The selection began. No passports were required, no papers were checked, and there was no roll call and no head count. One of the three commandants just lifted the index finger in his snow-white glove and pointed in the direction of a pale face, while his mouth pronounced the death sentence with one word. Come. Like a barrage of machine-gun fire came the German commands. Come, 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 come. The men selected were marched outside. SS men with rubber truncheons and iron prods awaited them. They kicked, beat, and tortured the innocent victims. When the tortured body no longer responded, the revolver was used. The random selection went on inside the barracks, and the brutal massacre continued outside of the barracks until sundown. When the Nazi black angels of death departed, they left behind heaps of hundreds of tortured and twisted bodies. Then Hanukkah came to Bergen-Belsen. It was time to kindle the Hanukkah lights. A jug of oil was not to be found, no candle was in sight, and a menorah belonged to the distant past. Instead, a wooden clog, the shoe of one of the inmates, became a menorah. Strings pulled from a concentration camp uniform, a wick, and the black camp shoe polish, pure oil. Not far from the heaps of the bodies, the living skeletons assembled to participate in the kindling of Hanukkah lights. The rabbi of Blushov lit the first light and chanted the first two blessings in his pleasant voice, and the festive melody was filled with sorrow and pain. When he was about to recite the third blessing, he stopped, turned his head, and looked around as if he was searching for something. But immediately he turned his face back to the quivering small lights and in a strong, reassuring, comforting voice chanted the third blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive and has preserved us and enabled us to reach this season. Among the people present at the kindling of the lights was a Mr. Zamyachevsky one of the leaders of the Warsaw Bund. He was a clever, sincere person with a passion for discussing matters of religion, faith, and truth. Even here in camp at Bergen-Belsen, his passion for discussion did not abate. He never missed an opportunity to engage in such a conversation. As soon as the rabbi of Blushov had finished the ceremony of kindling the lights, Zamyachevsky elbowed his way to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, you are a clever and honest person. I can understand your need to light Hanukkah candles in these wretched times. I can even understand the historical note of the second blessing, who wrought us miracles from our fathers in days of old at this season. But the fact that you recited the third blessing is beyond me. 
How could you thank God and say, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive and has preserved us and enabled us to reach this season? How could you say it when hundreds of dead Jewish bodies are literally lying within the shadows of the Hanukkah lights, when thousands of living Jewish skeletons are walking around in camp and millions more are being massacred? For this you are thankful to God? For this you praise the Lord? This you call keeping us alive? Zamyachowski, you are 100% correct, answered the rabbi. When I reached the third blessing, I also hesitated and asked myself, what should I do with this blessing? I turned my head in order to ask the rabbi of Zener and other distinguished rabbis who were standing near me, if indeed I might recite the blessing. But just as I was turning my head, I noticed that behind me a throng was standing, a large crowd of living Jews, their faces expressing faith, devotion, and concentration as they were listening to the rite of the kindling of the Hanukkah lights. I said to myself, If God, blessed be He, has such a nation that at times like these, when during the lighting of the Hanukkah lights they see in front of them the heaps of bodies of their beloved fathers, brothers, and sons, and death is looking from every corner. If despite all that they stand in throngs and with devotion listening to the Hanukkah blessing, who wrought us miracles from our fathers in days of old at this season, if indeed I was blessed to see such a people with so much faith and fervor, then I am under a special obligation to recite the third blessing. Some years after liberation, the rabbi of Blushov, now residing in Brooklyn, New York, received regards from Mr. Zemyachowski. Zemyachowski asked the son of the Skabanar rabbi to tell Israel Spira the rabbi of Blushov, that the answer he gave him that dark Hanukkah night in Bergen-Belsen has stayed with him ever since, and was a constant source of inspiration during hard and troubled times. While not specifically a solstice holiday, the Feast of Diwali in India, celebrated in late October or early November, celebrates the victory of light over darkness, as the harvest is completed and darkness begins to cover the sky. This excerpt from the Sanskrit epic, the Ramayana, relates the story of how Diwali came to be, with the victory of Prince Rama over the demon god Ravana, and his return to the city of Ayodhya. Long ago, in the kingdom of Ayotia, reigned a wise and powerful king called Dasharatha. King Dasharatha had three beautiful and intelligent wives, Kaushalya, Kaikeyi, and Sumitra. 
Dasharatha had four sons. On the day that the four princes reached the age of manhood, King Dasharatha made an announcement. I decree that my son Prince Rama will succeed to the throne of Ayutthaya. On hearing this, the entire kingdom erupted in an outpouring of joy, but there was one person who was not pleased at all. This was old Mantara, a hunchback servant of Queen Kaikeyi, mother of Prince Baharata. Mantara carefully poisoned Kaikeyi's mind against Rama with lies. When he becomes king, Rama will turn on your son, Baharata, and exile him, or worse. She convinced Kaikeyi to go to the king and demand that her son, Baharata, be named successor and that Rama be banished. King Dasharatha was heartbroken. For many years before, he had made a vow to grant Kaikeyi anything she wished, so he had to agree. Rama calmly obeyed his father's instruction to stand aside for his brother, Baharata. I will accompany you, said his wife Sita. Rama's loyal brother, Lakshmana, also vowed to join them in their humble life, far from the comforts and luxuries of the royal palace. Rama, Sita, and Lakshmana left the palace. They said farewell to the grieving citizens of Ayotia and began their journey to the jungle for their years of exile. While all this was taking place, there lived in the far-off islands of Lanka a cruel and powerful demon king called Ravana. When Rama, Sita, and Lakshmana arrived in the jungle, the wise men and women greeted them joyfully. "'O oh, great princes! O oh, wise princess!' they said. "'Please, we beg you to protect us from Ravana's fearsome demons.' So Rama and Lakshmana took up their weapons and fought ravenous demon hordes. They protected the wise men and women from the vicious attacks by the demons that owed allegiance to Ravana. Ravana was outraged and decided to take revenge on Rama. He flew in his chariot to Rama's jungle home. Seeing Rama and Lakshmana living a simple life with the beautiful Sita, Ravana devised an evil plan. He decided to kidnap Sita and make her one of his wives in Lanka. By a trick, he lured both Rama and Lakshmana away from the jungle hut where they lived. Then he disguised himself as a harmless old man. "'Please give me something to drink,' he said to Sita. "'Certainly, old father,' said the tender-hearted Sita, inviting him in. In the blink of an eye he scooped her up in his arms, and despite her angry cries for help, he flew off with her to Lanka. When Rama and Lakshmana returned to their dwelling place, they were dismayed to find that Sita had vanished. Rama and Lakshmana immediately began to seek for word of Ravana's whereabouts. In their search, they came across Sugriva, the king of the monkeys. One of Sugriva's followers was the powerful monkey Hanuman, who became one of Rama's most faithful devotees. O great king Sugriva, said Ramana respectfully, my brother and I are searching for my wife Sita, who has been taken by Ravana, the demon king. Help us, I beg you, to find her. Sugriva, Hanuman, and all the monkeys eagerly agreed to help Rama in his search. They fanned out in all directions, looking for Sita. It was Hanuman who flew over the sea to the far-off island of Lanka, where he finally located the weeping Sita. Hanuman then returned to Rama and told him of his discovery. Rama, Lakshmana, Hanuman, and an uncountable multitude of fierce monkeys marched towards the sea. 
With tremendous energy, the monkey army built a bridge of rocks which they crossed. They marched right up to the very gates of Ravana's palace. For many days Rama and Lakshmana and the courageous monkey army fought off the ferocious attacks of the demons. Ravana used all the deceitful and cunning tricks he could think of, but Rama and his allies were able to defeat each one and drive the demons back. Finally, Rama and Ravana encountered each other on the battlefield. They fought ferociously, but Ravana was finally defeated and killed by Rama. Imagine the joyful reunion of husband and wife. Rama and Sita were reunited to the loud cheers of Lakshmana, Sugriva, Hanuman, and all the monkey army. Rama, Sita, and Lakshmana bade a fond farewell to their monkey friends, and then made their way back to the royal palace of Ayotia after fourteen years in the jungle. All along the way the joyful people lit lamps to celebrate their triumphant progress. The magnificent city of Ayotia was ablaze with lights as the four royal princes were reunited. Rama and Sita ascended the throne to rule wisely for many a long year. And to this day the festival of Diwali reenacts this triumphant return of Rama and Sita and the final victory of goodness over evil, truth over ignorance, and light over darkness. Lastly, and mainly just for fun, here is the Christmas poem written by Clement Clark Moore and first published anonymously in the Troy, New York Sentinel on December 23, 1823. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar-plums danced in their heads. And Mom in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eye should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donder and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pouring of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, 
and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled! His dimples, how merry! His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face, and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him, in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But. I heard him exclaim, as he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. And that's it for this special edition of Notes from the Isle Seat. My name is Tom Lachlan, and my wish for you this solstice season, more light. Goethe's final words, more light. Ever since we crawled out of that primordial slime, that's been our unifying cry. More light. Sunlight. Torchlight. Candlelight. Neon. Incandescent. Light to banish the darkness from our caves, to illuminate our roads, the insides of our refrigerators. Big floods for the night games at Soldier's Field. Little tiny flashlight for those books we read under the covers when we're supposed to be asleep. Light is more than watts and foot candles. Light is metaphor. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Arise, shine, for thy light has come. Light is knowledge. Light is life. Light is light. 